So I had oral surgery this week, so my capacity to speak with my face mouth is greatly hampered. Hey, welcome to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to the best artist about telling true stories, teasing out origins, habits, and routines so that you can apply some of those tools of mastery to improve your own work. What's going on, CNFers? My CNF buddies. I recorded this interview prior to the surgery with Ellen Stekindal, our Norwegian medical student and sexual health educator. So I sound like a human person through the interview. She, along with Nina Brockman, wrote The Wonder Down Under, The Insider's Guide to the Anatomy, Biology, and Reality of the Vagina. It's quite a fun read. Both Ellen Stekkendal and the Nina Brockman are touring the U.S. as we speak since the book caught fire after their TEDx Oslo talk about the virginity fraud, breaking mess about the hymen and such. Got nearly, oh, it's up around 3 million views about now, so go take a look in the show notes. I spoke only with Ellen Stekkendal for this episode because the Nina Brockman got sick at the last minute. So, with Ellen, we hit on how her curiosity led her to women's health, co-authoring a book and co-writing a TED Talk, how the lack of information can ruin lives, and processing a new sense of global visibility. So now a little housekeeping. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show so you can get one of these nifty little podcasts every Friday. Also, if you leave an honest review on iTunes, I'll edit or coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words. You give me one minute of your review time, I'll give you a couple hours of mine. Not a bad deal. Okay, now it's time to hear the brilliant Ellen Stekindal for episode 92. Wow. Days, and then we're going to Chicago, and then uh, San Francisco, then Seattle, and then Los Angeles. That's amazing. I, so, are you su- surprised with how the the book has caught caught fire? Almost, it really ignited so so quickly. I mean, what's been the experience like of of really just riding this uh, just this momentum on this book? It must be pretty exciting. Well, it has been uh, nuts, really. We never imagined to sell the book to any country outside of Norway, and we didn't really imagine that it would go that well in Norway either. So uh, uh, this is still kind of a big uh, shock for us, uh, and especially the fact that we can travel. um, uh, I mean, we never thought that we would go to the US with our book and have a translation in English. So um that it has been it has been great it's uh it's like a fun adventure but um still i think both of us are a bit sad that this book is still needed and wanted that much in 2018 because it's like basic information about women's health uh and it's so it is so popular because people don't have any sources to go to when looking for answers to their questions about uh sex, uh, bodies, uh, health. So, um, I mean, these are topics we don't talk enough about. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And the, and, but in the way you guys 
uh, write about it is so uh, you know frank and and light and fun that it is extremely accessible. Like I finished the book earlier um, this weekend, and it was as someone who studied a lot of biology myself, it was it was just a really fun fun and deeply informative read and I learned just a ton and I, I came in with a a somewhat maybe higher baseline of knowledge just based on some of my biology studies and it was still amazing me how little I knew so I mean it must have been like you said it was kind of sad in a way that uh that the book is needed in 2018. Yeah, but so, I mean, most people that we talk to, even with uh, medical backgrounds, uh, learn a lot because uh, medicine isn't really, you know, prioritizing uh, everyday uh, women's uh, ailments. So uh, facts about, um, I don't know, discharge and menstrual pains, uh, things that women have to deal with every day, it's not really considered disease. Uh, so it's not uh, talked about that much in in medicine either so we kind of um uh, everyday women's health kind of falls between two chairs uh yeah and uh, so like let's back up a little bit i'd love to get a sense of um kind of like where where you grew up what kind of kid you were and um how you ultimately became uh, interested in in biology and female reproductive system and and how this became really a sort of a galvanized as a as a life's passion and and work for you. So, like when you were growing up, at what point did you did your curiosity turn into something that grew into something much deeper? Well, uh, I've always been uh, curious in um, topics of science and biology. Uh, I remember that I got this uh, toy microscope. Uh, from my parents when I was uh, maybe six years old uh, and looked at, um, you know, uh, uh, wings of insects and uh, plants and uh, just I was curious and wanted to study the things that uh, were around me. And um, uh, when I went to school, I always liked uh, science class. Um, I come from a family with uh, uh, my father is a geophysicist and my mother is a teacher in um uh, in chemistry, uh, so uh, I really came from a background where um, uh, science was, was uh, talked a lot about in ho at home, and um, uh, we always uh, had discussions about uh, I don't know biology, mathematics. So uh, that was kind of a natural interest for me, uh, and also I uh, always read a lot uh, as a kid, both uh, fiction and. Um, uh, non-fiction uh, and uh, I don't know that um, also build up uh, a wish to to write for me so from a very very young age I wanted to uh, to write so this project has kind of um, merged uh, several of my passions like my passion for medicine uh, and science and also my passion to uh, to write and to make uh, information accessible for every reader something I had a lot of uh, um, it was uh, I, I always like to read popular science as a kid to uh, uh, re read simplified scientific uh, materials so uh, yeah this is kind of a <laughs> combination of these passions for me yeah that's that's wonderful um 
what were some some books and and some writers that really inspired you to at some point or in some point in your future to pick up the the pen and do your own writing and try to convey the some of the esoteric messages of science into more like layman's terms like who were some of those authors that really um that kind of almost gave you permission to do it yourself well uh i didn't read any you know good popular science as a kid so that was when i was older in uh, my late teens and early 20s uh that must have been well uh the, the best example of that must be uh julia enders uh, and her book uh, gut uh, came out uh, a few years ago in the us also uh she's a german oh she was a german medical student and uh, wrote her um uh her book about um um yeah about the taboo topic uh as a medical student and uh, that was very both Nina and I thought that that was very brave since uh, uh medicine is really a hierarchical uh, structure uh you are not really supposed to uh you know talk that much about what you know when you're a student or a junior doctor uh so uh, we just thought she was uh, very brave to kind of write um a book like that to to the public uh without being an expert uh i mean she is uh, she's now um much deeper into uh the science behind that but she wrote gut as a medical student so i think that was uh that was um that gave us permission to try as well because we wrote uh, the wonder down under as medical students i'm still in my last year at medical school so we are in no way like experts in this field we're not specialized in gynecology or venerology so there are a lot of people who know a lot more about uh you know uh, single topics in our book than we do but we had uh, the opportunity to um simplify and popularize it for a broader audience and um Julia Anders uh, really showed that that was possible uh for us so and also um i uh, for from an american writer i, li- I really like uh, uh mary roach uh her book uh, stiff uh, about uh, cadavers that is mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, uh popular science reads how did you get your start in you know specifically with you know you had the broader interest in just science and biology and then at what point did you start to get really specific towards you know towards women's health which ultimately leads to the blog and then the TEDx talk and then the book but let's kind of like work our way through that so at what point did you really start to hone in your focus on women's health uh well in 2011 when i started medical school uh, at the same time as nina i volunteered to do this uh, sexual education program for uh, youths uh, in norway uh, and also uh, refugees uh, and sex workers uh, and um i realized when i started working with sexual education that uh, uh the lack of information can really ruin people's lives uh, in um in a very profound way i mean uh by giving uh people the knowledge or the by making people understand that they are normal and good enough the way they are that can really change how they feel about themselves because uh when it comes to taboo topics uh 
the insecurities and questions that people have, uh, they don't really know where to turn to get the answers. They don't really know where to turn to be told that uh, that they are normal. And when it comes to female sexual health, especially, uh, there has been so much shame, insecurities, and also misconceptions that uh, makes it uh, hard to be, uh, I think... Um, a woman who is uh, interested in her own uh, sexuality, especially if uh, you are a woman who experienced some uh, physiological process that you don't understand and may think that something is wrong with you. Um, there are several, well, our TEDx talk about the hymen is, uh, I think, the most important example on how, uh, you know, uh, female anatomy is the, the story we tell about female anatomy is distorted to serve some purpose uh, because uh, we have always been told that the hymen is kind of a virginity seal that's supposed to break and you're supposed to bleed the first time you have sex. Uh, and this is very useful for societies who want to uh, control um female sexuality and uh, women in their everyday lives. Uh, when we started with the sexual education classes, we saw how uh, parents of young uh, immigrant children in Norway uh, were afraid to let their uh, young girls uh, participate in normal everyday activities like bicycling, maybe using tampons because they were afraid that they would uh, ruin themselves and their honor uh, from doing these activities. So um, the control that you get from creating myths about things like the hymen, it, it's broader than just controlling women's sexual life. It's also controlling their everyday lives. Uh, and um, we, we had a lot of uh, examples where we understood in our sexual education classes that by giving certain um, pieces of information, you could really change how people were thinking about themselves. And that's, uh, that's when I started to think that uh, this work is really worthwhile uh, and uh, important. And not a lot of people are working in this field. So I thought we could do a lot of uh, good by focusing on sexual health. Yeah, and you say that the lack of information can ruin lives. And what was your experience with, or what has been some of the experience you've had with with the refugees and maybe the fear that they feel based on the information that they've been given versus what's you know what's real, like the stuff that you're trying to um, educate people on and the stuff that they probably inherently feel scared of or shameful of? Like, what, what has been your experience with that? Yeah, young women who are uh, have tell us stories about how they or friends have, um, uh, you know, experienced uh, hard situations with their families because of uh, uh, their hymen, for example, lack of bleeding, um, also, we have been approached by um, women who have turned to the healthcare system uh, to get help, uh, for example, by getting, uh, you know, virginity certificates uh, or um, uh, surgical procedures to change the look of, uh, of their uh, hymen. Um, 
those are you know common stories that we got uh, all the time and that we still get uh, through uh, feedback uh, on our TED talk. Uh, and uh, yeah, these are examples that um, uh, when we know that uh, the hymen doesn't work that way, it's it's very hard to um, to uh, know that uh, this is still happening. Uh, there are of course also uh, different um, aspects of sexual health that's uh, especially important to um, uh, immigrant societies in uh, in Norway and other countries. Uh, for example, uh, female genital mutilation. Um, well, uh, we had uh, we spoke to uh, one woman once who. Uh, uh, was trying to get pregnant uh, with her husband and um, they didn't make it and um, uh, then we realized that they had been having uh, anal sex because she had uh, been uh, subjected to uh, uh, genital mutilation she was been uh, had been uh, infibulated which is uh, the process when um, uh, the outer labia is sewn together uh, so there's only like uh, a little hole left for urine menstrual fluid and of course, uh, unless you are opened again, uh, it's impossible to to become. Um, it's impossible to have uh, normal vaginal sex, uh, and uh, it sounds maybe absurd that someone wouldn't know that you couldn't get pregnant from anal sex. But if no one told you, then how would you know? Uh, and again, this shows how education is so important in in every culture and. Uh, just to underline that, um, uh, the myths about the hymen have consequences for women from more conservative cultures, but the same myths still exist uh, in the West and also in Norway. I mean, uh, a lot of young girls that are, of, um, that are um, Norwegian, that are white, uh, are uh, uh, also, you know, scared that they it will hurt, that they will bleed too much, and... Uh, uh, we still uh, look differently at uh, female virginity than we do at male virginity. So this is a problem that's uh, everywhere in all cultures, even if the consequences are worse in the more conser conservative ones. You know, you're alluding to like education and knowledge here is power. And, and often a lot of powerful people don't want to have certain people or yeah, certain people educated because it will give them knowledge that will empower them. And in you're giving lots of people empowerment and education in with your work and your writing. Um, have you experienced any pushback from, from people who don't want women to know the, everything about, you know, their bodies and their, their biology? Like, have you experienced any pushback from, from people from more conservative cultures? Uh, luckily, very little uh, yet. But uh, I mean, um, the book is just recently out in uh, in the US. Uh, so currently, we have only been subjected to uh, critique in uh, Scandinavia and uh, parts of Europe. Uh, so and the culture, I mean, uh, in Europe is also different from the culture in the US. Um, so We'll wait and see <laughs> if uh, someone uh, reacts. Uh, we we have gotten some critique from um, uh, actually a Danish conservative politician, uh, but that wasn't necessarily about uh, 
how it's bad to empower people. It was more the fact that, well, she she uh, compared us to children who are uh, fascinated by their feces. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a you know control technique. Um, yeah. Very condescending. Um, she. Uh, her reaction was, uh, should nothing be hidden anymore? Should nothing be secret? Uh, and what about uh, the mystery? Shouldn't anything be a mystery? But uh, and, and that's a common reaction that we get. Also, a lot of men may feel that uh, if we talk uh, very openly about uh, normal physiological female, pro- female processes, then some of the magic disappears. Uh, but, uh, I mean... The fact that something is secret, that uh, that hurts people. Because uh, if it's secret, then you won't know if you're normal. So, uh, or, uh, or you'll have try to get pregnant by having anal sex if you don't, I mean, yeah. don't get edu- fully educated. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we need to be open about these issues in, um, I think, in an objective way. It's not about... Uh, uh, it's not about, well, every pe- person doesn't necessarily have to talk about their own discharge or their own periods. I mean, Nina and I certainly are not talking about ourselves, but we are talking about medicine in the general uh, way. Uh, and we're trying to be open about sexuality in a general way. And I think that's, I think that's very important. I'd love to hear your take on the differences in 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 culture too, like from Europe to to the United States, and maybe for people who aren't as familiar with Scandinavian and in Europe at large, in terms of the sex education culture and how it is in the states. Like, what have you noticed as a, a difference between between cultures in your experience? Uh, well, uh, I my impression is that uh, in the U.S. Uh, some people are very open and eager for uh, education but uh, you have a lot of strong uh, conservative forces uh, and uh, the way I understand it uh, like every child in the US does not get sexual education that's true right no yeah I believe it depends where you are in 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 the country there are definitely very conservative states and like say in the in the far south that sometimes definitely stay away from that and some of the places up north are more progressive like that but yeah by and large you're right yeah so but it's difficult of course to talk about the u.s as a country because you're more of a like a continent with uh, such different uh, peoples uh yeah uh, so but one concrete example that we have noticed is that whenever we're giving talks in the US or having um, lectures, uh, we are asked, uh, is this suitable for teenagers? And we have never been asked those questions in uh, Europe because most people assume that sexual education is for teenagers only. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's one strange difference that uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, the people that uh, are arranging these lectures that we have are scared that we would, uh, I don't know, teach the teenagers something that they shouldn't know, <laughs> uh, which uh, that, that has never been the case in, um, in Europe. And with, with so much of what you, you write about in the book from, you know, the very sensitive, polarizing topics, you know, the, 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 the virgin fraud of the you know the myths surrounding the the hymen uh ab- 
abortion uh men's you know the the very detailed um elucidating stuff about uh menstruation everything and then you uh you guys ultimately decided to talk about the the virginity fraud for your TEDx talk and um so what was the discussions that you and Nina were having when you decided to focus on that as your as your talk well it came very natural to us because i think that is the most important topic that we work with uh it's uh, it's still um these myths still have uh, such uh, extreme consequences for uh, for women uh, and um, it's so strange to us that the information has been known for so long, but that it's not, it hasn't reached even the educated uh, population. I mean, uh, I watched an episode of Girls uh, the other day, uh, and uh, there is a scene where um, Hannah's editor tells her that, uh, or is trying to tell her that uh, she wrote a very dull article. And he uses the phrase, uh, Hannah, did your hymen grow back? Oh. So, I mean, even in girls, even in, uh, yeah, we have a lot of, uh, we've been looking at a lot of television series to find examples on where the hymen is uh, misrepresented. And when you do that, I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, popular culture is uh, is uh, making uh, this myth uh, stay alive. And, and so are doctors when they keep writing virginity certificates, they keep uh, doing these surgical procedures. So it's so absurd. Uh, we've known for more than a hundred years that the hymen doesn't necessarily change uh, during intercourse and that uh, a lot of women doesn't bleed. Um, in our TED talk, we mentioned uh, an article from, from uh, 1906 by a Norwegian doctor, um, in which she uh, is present where um, a forensic doctor is comparing the hymen of uh, a sex worker to that of... Uh, or or uh, he's trying to determine whether a woman is a sex worker or not. And he thinks she's a virgin, but she's an experienced sex worker. So we can't tell the difference. And that is a 1906 paper. And still we we are replicating this myth. So it's so absurd. And uh, so it was uh, a lot of fun to do the research. And we felt that um, also the work has been very worthwhile. And you and Nina both share the stage for the for the talk. And so how did you guys go about structuring that talk so you weren't in competition with one another, but complementing each other? Like, how did how did you guys workshop that and then ultimately bring it to the stage? Yeah, we had to uh, quarrel a bit with the TED uh, X team to uh, make that happen because usually they only take uh, single uh, speakers. Uh, but we we've done everything together, and we really thought that it would be uh, better if we were two. Uh, they didn't believe us, but now I I think we were right. Uh, so what we did, we just uh, we wrote together, we practiced a lot. Uh, we uh, we even uh, stood up on chairs in Nina's kitchen and uh, sung our manuscripts uh, to different melodies, shouted it. I mean, <laughs> uh, we tried it out until uh, we thought it was uh, was good enough and. Um, for us who aren't, uh, you know, English native speakers, it took a lot of uh, practice to feel uh, secure. But uh, um, yeah, I think we we did uh, we did a good job with it, just to 
split uh, the information evenly and uh, it was good to work with the props together as two people that couldn't have worked as one person i think so yeah yeah and what was the experience like um co-authoring a book too say the book has like a nice sort of uniform voice to it so you don't say like oh that's clearly nina writing and that's clearly ellen writing and, you know it does have this kind of a uniform feel to it so how how did you guys achieve that in the book uh well uh we did uh, we split the topics in two and did half the research for each uh, part uh, and then we wrote the first draft and then we swapped and then we edited each other te each other's text so much that uh, the tone uh, in the end um became somewhere in the middle of the two of us uh so that was um also very it came very natural to us to do it uh, that way none of us had ever written a book before so uh that's how we did it yeah and, and given that you haven't again neither of you had written a book before and you're coming from say like non-writing backgrounds presenting you're coming at it from you know medical and as scientists um was there any reluctance or a fear of approaching it as a book project or or um or did you were you guys just kind of like fearless and you're just like yeah let's just let's just let it rip and and go like what was that experience like well i remember uh especially nina had uh, a lot of fear uh but in a different uh way it was more like uh are we good enough in the medical field to spread this uh, knowledge? Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I mean, we we did that and we tried it out. So that was the scary part. I think both of us have always been um, very passionate about writing and done a lot of writing for ourselves. Uh, so um, we weren't scared about that. I think also, uh, yeah, I think uh, we are both uh, confident in our writing skills. Uh, so that wasn't the problem for us. Yeah, a lot of people, um, you know, that listen to this show and that I've spoken to, uh, you know, as a writer myself, is that there's a people have this vision of what their book is in their head, and then when they start to actually maybe write some of it down, it's not, it's not uh, congruent or matching the vision they have in their head, so they stop and they get blocked and they get fearful and then they just stop doing the work. Like, did you guys? experience any of that kind of hiccup you're like all right we've got this blog we've got the the book we want in our head uh, but it's it's just not manifesting itself but but it, it appears like you guys just muscled through so maybe how did you approach the the writing and and, and power through your drafts to get to your final product well we had we each of us had a lot of periods uh during um the writing process in which we felt that uh, we sucked at writing even if we were <laughs> when we started but uh, the funny thing was that whenever i felt like i'd done shit work uh nina could take over and say that oh no these parts are really good and uh, if we change this and this then this is a great text uh, and then when she had similar uh, feelings of um, fear and uh, i don't know imposter syndrome then uh, i could take uh, over and do the same for her so uh, we were uh strangely matched in the fact that we never had a block at the same time so that was lucky for us 
That, yeah, that's incredible that you could kind of offset some of the creative burden on the other person if you were just like in a rut. The other person could pick up the slack. Yeah, and I think a lot of writers, uh, well, most of writers write alone, right? So uh, this is not an experience that most people uh, have had. So I think that's uh, that's the great and interesting thing about writing uh, together. Uh, and also uh, Nina and I share the same background. We have the same opinions on this topic. We have a certain, we, we have a different approach to style, I think, in uh, some aspect. But um uh that was uh, i think uh, these differences that we had and um sacrifices i had to make to uh change it the way she liked sometimes that was worth um that was worth it when i'm thinking about the times when i just didn't feel like i could write so uh if i'd done this alone uh, it would have been so much more uh, difficult so this was a good project to be to uh on and, I think. and when you guys were were writing the book, did you guys like share an office while you did it? Or were you kind of like um, you would write something and then email it to her? Or were you guys always in the same room? No, we wrote the first drafts and did the research separately. And then we met up and had like one weekend a month where we uh, – uh, you know, ruined each other's texts to try to make them uh, better. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, the we did the first drafts alone. Uh, Nina had just uh, given birth to her son, uh, so she uh, wrote uh, in the evenings after he uh, was asleep. And I uh, wrote at school a lot since I was taking classes at medical school at that time. So... Um, that's, yeah, that's that's incredible because a lot of people they sometimes they make make excuses that they don't have the time and really what it is is that people have a hard time prioritizing the time to to write the book they want to write do the research they want to do and it's like geez you're you're in med medical school and you've prioritized the time to to write the book to write the blog to make the TEDx talk Nina new mother doc you know going through medical school doctor now i believe and and it's just in you yet you guys still found the time on your calendar like how were you able to organize your lives so you did get the work done amidst your very full plate of activities and responsibilities well, uh, we are both very hard workers, uh, but uh, I, whenever I try to do something alone or for, mys for myself, uh, it's much harder to uh, find the time because I feel like whenever I take time, take time to write on a personal project, then, uh, then, oh, I should be reading medicine instead or uh, similar problems. But I knew that Nina was at home writing, so I couldn't not do the same I could not write and she had the same feeling with me so we kind of we competed against each other and um, we were each other's motivators I think so uh, whenever she had finished something I got the text and if I was behind on my part I had to speed up so yeah that's another great thing about being two I mean um, we are very competitive people I just couldn't let her beat me I think <laughs> So how did you guys meet and become and become friends? 
Um, we became friends through this process, really, when we realized that we were so similar um, in our, um, you know, uh, work ethics, uh, and of course, also the important things when it comes to friendship, like humor and uh, uh, I don't know, t- taste in movies. Uh, that's important too. But um, uh, we weren't friends when we started working uh, together. We were um, we were in the same class for a while, so. Uh, uh we knew each other but uh we were placed together because we were the two people who cared the most about uh female sexual health so we were the biggest nerds uh so we were like placed together against our will actually we were asked to start the blog by a norwegian newspaper after having doing after we did some work together for this um for this sexual education organization so I don't think uh, I would ever have picked Nina to work with, and I definitely don't think she would have picked me either. Uh, but it was it was a strike of luck, really, uh, because she's great to work with. And um, uh, this book, uh, I think this book is became uh, great because we have yeah similar approaches and work very well together. So we were lucky, yeah. <laughs> and now we're very. Now we're traveling the world together and uh, have a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. Do you think this is a book you could have, say, just say the timeline was different? Say, like five years from now, you're a bit more entrenched in the medical community. Is this a book you could have, like, if you can think of it that way? Is this a book you think you could write from within the system, or do you guys still feel like you needed to be outside? the system still to have accomplished what you accomplished with this book? Well, I think um, part of our tone uh, and uh, the the perspective, the way we can speak directly to a reader that's kind of on our level when it comes to um, uh, education. And um, yeah, I think... uh, it was a strength to be from the outside of the system because then it was also easier to to get that certain tone. A lot of readers tell us that it's like you know reading um, uh, reading advice from a friend, uh, which is nice, I think. Uh, and also, it's much easier to be critical towards the medical system while you're outside of it as a medical student and kind of an outsider. Because, of course, uh, we are critical towards how um, uh, medicine has not prioritized uh, uh, female problems uh, in a way. So uh, kind of maybe we got a better view from where we were. Is there any – have you guys worried that maybe the – like like you said, like the tone you've struck with this book and maybe the way you've been uh, somewhat critical of some of the medical culture, that it could in, sort of negatively impact your career as someone, as a medical professional? Or is that something you didn't care to care about so much? Well, I think we would have cared if that was uh, an option that we thought lightly. But, um, uh, I mean, the way we are critical towards uh, medicine, it's more like an historical critique. And also we're trying to change how it is now. And a lot of doctors are doing that. A lot of people are trying to 
uh, to change how um, we work with uh, with women uh, or female patients. So uh, no, we weren't um, afraid of that. Actually, we've gotten a lot of support and um, good feedback from uh, uh, from uh, doctors, our professors at school, and we've gotten a lot of help actually. So um, yeah, and good reviews from doctors as well. So uh, we feel that they have accepted uh, these two non-experts writing about uh, things they like so yeah mm-hmm. and as uh, uh, like lots of lots of writers toil toil away in sort of obscurity and don't really strike a huge audience and so forth and and you guys through the blog and the TED talk and and now the book being you know translated into well available in 30 some odd countries and translated into dozens of languages you know you guys have gone from relative anonymity to very visible and how have you processed that going from you know the Ellen who is you know just doing her thing sex educator in Norway to now almost being like a sort of global person and a global voice for this cause so like what how have you processed that bigger visibility well i'm not finished processing it yet uh i still think it's um it's insane but uh it's i'm i'm very happy that uh, since this project is what it is um no one is really asking me questions about my private life or about me this i think this is the first interview where i have discussed my childhood and also my uh, opinions and feelings about the writing process so I think uh, this is um, uh, one of the occasions that I've been uh, sharing more uh, of myself even if this is not a very you know private interview or an interview that's focusing on um, private subjects so uh, we have been lucky in the I think we have been lucky because we have been able to have a great success without uh, sharing our private lives because a lot of people who have success in uh, writing today are also uh, or at least um, you know uh, bloggers and instagram stars and celebrities and you have to you have to um, have a persona uh, to uh, have a success i think and it's very hard for writers who just want to uh, write a good book and be Uh, and be a private person I think that's becoming harder and harder also uh, how people are uh, journalists it's more more about um, the journalist uh, sharing uh, his or her opinion on uh, a case than actually covering the case so uh, we we are lucky in the aspect that we have we we are still private uh, people uh, and also, of course, this is uh, great because um, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to publish books and uh, I never imagined that anything could ever go this well. So um, I think I'm I'm living uh, my dream life right now. So, of course, I'm happy about that. Mm. Yeah. Popular science is fun. Yeah, of course. And uh, um, Ella, where can people... Uh, find out more about like follow you guys online and and uh, if they want to learn a little bit more about your work where can people uh find out more about you guys and what you're doing 
Uh, well, they can follow us at uh, Facebook and Instagram. We uh, have uh, our Instagram account, account is uh, Wonder Down Under, and on Facebook we are the Wonder Down Under. Uh, and there you can find information um, about uh, what we're doing and where we're at, uh, and um, new releases and uh, so on. Uh, and also, of course, uh, our book can be bought uh, online on Amazon. And yeah. Fantastic. And before I let you get out of here, I just want to make sure I um, pronounce your, you and Nina's um, names correctly. So could you, um, could you like pronounce your, your full name and Nina's full name for me? Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Ellen Stöckendal. Okay. And uh, Nina's name is uh, Nina Brockman. Fantastic. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for carving out some time of your uh, your morning here and as your U.S. tour gets started. Um, this was a lot of fun for me and elucidating and very informative. So it was a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and hear about your work. And I wish you the, the best of luck with what you're doing. It's great work, and I can't wait to hear more from you in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me here. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, we've come to the end of yet another episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Show notes and fun stuff are all over at brendanomera.com. There you can subscribe to my monthly reading list newsletter, four books, and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. Once a month, no spam. You can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah. Subscribe to the podcast. Share with a friend. This is our little corner of the internet where we uh, talk true stories. If you've got someone who you think might be interested in it, why not just uh, forward it along? I produced and conducted this show at Brendan O'Meara on Twitter and Instagram. Say hi. That's going to do it. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll do this whole thing again next week. Sound good? All right. Have the CNF and great week. Bye.